Welcome to the New Books Network. Well, the long and the short of it is, for me, when I became Catholic, I recognized that the authority of the Catholic Church isn't, isn't a confinement. It's actually a freedom. How does the Catholic Church know that its doctrine about the Virgin Mary, much of which comes from sacred tradition instead of the Scripture, is true? Chris Paget spells it out for us on Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Odinius. I ask interesting people who have thought about the big questions to share their conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this format, in relationship, in dialogue, in back and forth, may help us approach the truth, and I have a really good time doing it. And should you want to take the conversation a step further, I invite you, please, to email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Today, I have the pleasure and honor of speaking with Chris Paget. He's a speaker, musician, author, and scholar. Search for him on YouTube, and you will immediately find many of his keynote talks all over the country. Search in Google, and you will find his rock music, both his solo work and with the Christian rock band Scarecrow and the Tin Men. Take a look at his website, chrispaget.com, and you will hear his testimony and see his 12 books. So, Chris, you are a prolific and mighty voice in the 21st century Catholic Church in America, and it is a delight and an honor to have you on Almost Good Catholics today. Happy wow. Valentine's Day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no, what a what a joy to be here. I'm grateful. And that's probably one of the nicest introductions I've had. So I just want you to know I'm almost excited to hear what I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay then. Well, why don't let's I'd like to ask you first what brought you to the Catholic Church or what brought the Catholic Church to you. Uh, and then I'd like to ask you about your Mariology. You wrote the book Holy Mary, that's W-H-O-L-L-Y. Mary, but it also sort of underscores the holy H-O-L-Y in the title as well. And then you wrote about your studies about the life and Mariology of Juniper B. Carroll, a Cuban-American priest and a a very big Mariologist of the 20th century. Um, But let's start with you. Okay. Well, uh, we're going to see a theme that's consistent when uh, when we talk about my spirituality and formation um, and its authority. I would say that for me, uh, growing up as a, as a young kid, my mom began to take us to a Protestant church after um, her divorce. And I think what we began to realize, my sister and I, uh, is that our family was going to adhere to whatever it is that God had in store for us as a family. So from a very early age, I was um, taught by my mother's scripture verses. Um, I was certainly encouraged to read the Bible. And um, and in fact, for some camps and stuff that would come up, we would have to memorize uh, like the Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes. So um, scripture and faith was a huge part of my childhood. And allowing Christ to have free reign in my life was certainly encouraged by our denomination that we were in, but also and specifically by my mother who wanted our faith to not be a once a week experience. So I had all of that growing up and the authority of my mother in my life being such a strong uh, spiritual figure. Um, I really had no problem accepting what she was giving me as, you know, the gospel truth. And so when I got to my teenage years, I, you know, I struggled like a lot of kids did with a variety of issues. And, um, I realized that I'm, I'm not as holy as Mm. I would like to be. I'm not even remotely as holy as I think the church or God would want me to be. So how does that work now? And, um, I think that this is a strong struggle that a lot of, um, my Protestant formation had, which was how do we deal with, uh, our sin or reoccurring sin, or at some point, isn't God going to be, um, inconvenienced or irritated or give up on us because of our behavior. And I think depending on what denomination you're in, there's a propensity to say, uh, well, it doesn't matter. One saved, always saved. So you can't do anything. And then the other is God's, you know, got a, his, his finger on the trigger. And at any yeah. moment, he's ready to, to set you free. And so where did I fall in that? In that? And um, and really, the consolation came when I began to realize the gift. Wait, can, can I ask? Can I ask when you say yeah. finger on the trigger, do you mean he's going to smite you in his wrath? Like uh, <laughs> angry, you know, the angry God with the spider in the old uh, Puritan thing? Uh, oh, or sure, do you think like sure. he can liberate you at a, like he can free you from your sin and the chains will fall? No, 
No, the the former. I mean, okay. r- my formation was was, um, and maybe even independent of the denominational rubrics. I mean, my formation certainly lent itself to me understanding that I, what I was doing was behavior worthy of hell. And so, I mean, y- you know, I mean, yes. and I think it was my logical conclusion that, uh, you know, it's not going to take much to, you know, have that tipping point. Uh, you know, the final straw, but. Some of that had to do with the divorce of my parents and my understanding of who God was. There's no doubt about that. So, um, I, you know, and I recognize that. But I will say that, you know, the sinner in the hands of, of an angry God, um, th- there's certain pastoral and even evangelical leaders that I was interested in Um like Charles Finney, for example, um, D.L. Moody and Hudson Taylor and all of these, they were almost like the the saints of some of the Protestant circles that I was in. These figures were not interested in, in messing around. I mean, ultimately, you know, you're quaking in your boots because this God is so holy and you're so not. I, so I kind of missed a lot of the memo of God's radical love. And in some ways, I think there was this kind of idea that it was a little bit milquetoast, wishy-washy to focus too much on that. Now, it was enough to preach that to somebody who was struggling with drugs or somebody who, uh, you know, was struggling with immorality, you know, the God's mercy was great and, and just, but it's, you know, for someone like me who knows the difference between right and wrong, there's not a lot of excuse, uh, that I can, um, that I can have. So all of that, you know, set the stage for me because oddly enough, the Catholic church is certainly, um, kind of identified with the good old fashioned quote, Catholic guilt. And, um, yeah, that's a weird, that's a weird thing. I know. Yeah. Well, I think I had more guilt as a Protestant than I, I, I've ever had with, uh, you know, being Catholic. But the authority issue was such a transformative moment for me within the Catholic context because um, what happened was after being introduced to a variety of different Catholic expressions and people who are um, excited about their Catholic faith, it caused me to ask, why do I believe what I believe? Why do they believe what they believe? And as I began to do a bit of a deep dive into what the Catholic Church has to say about the Catholic faith, I realized a lot of my understandings were, uh, you know, stereotypes and, and misinterpretations of Catholic doctrine. And actually, uh, uh, upon even deeper explorations in the church fathers and, um, you know, the catechism, it complemented not only scripture so wonderfully, but it certainly took many of the theologians that I was exploring and their insights to a depth I had never really seen in my Protestant um, explorations. And so um, I ended up kind of putting myself in a situation where I decided if I entered RCIA, at least I could have an out if I needed it. Um, we'll see if all of my questions can be answered enough that I would that I would basically push aside all of my upbringing and accept this once thought, you know, Babylon, uh, this almost kind of oasis of of uh, heresy. Okay. And I I. <laughs> I entered the church Easter of 1999, and I just think God's sense of humor is so beautiful because uh, the church that I used to go put gospel tracks on people's cars while they were in mass, uh, you know, was at, at some point in the future a church that I would walk into and receive Jesus in the Eucharist. And yeah. so, I mean, you know, I, I, authority and that authority issue was so profound because. When I started to realize, wait a minute, Jesus gave his authority to the apostles, and the apostles then passed that on, we see in the Acts of the Apostles, and and we have now this lineage kind of coming to to today today with the Pope. I mean, that that explains the consistency in faith and morals, and I had been to so many Protestant denominations that— uh, adhere to a denominational stance or to even a charismatic leader. And there were so many expressions and variables that the, how, how do you know? I mean, the, the Holy Spirit's not schizophrenic. So what's the final authority <laughs> when it comes to our understandings? And it was for me, obviously, the Catholic Church. Okay. Uh, and so that was 1999. And then for 20, what is it now? 23 years. Uh, I guess, you have yeah. Been, yeah, you've been you've been um, wor- working in the church. Were you um, married to your wife at that time? Yeah, uh, yeah. 
And yeah, we got married know? March thirtieth, I think, nineteen ninety one. It's it's uh, it's been a while, and uh, we both we both have had quite a, a conversion to the Lord, and we both kind of journeyed into the Catholic Church. Like I would come home from trips, and I would explain, "Here's some of the things I'm learning. What do you think?" And she would unpack some ideas, and then we were listening to a bunch of Lighthouse Catholic media tapes, and we were reading Catholic books and. I had these lists like here's what the Catholic Church says about purgatory and about the Eucharist and about right. and about uh, Mary. So, you know, why do I not agree with this and why why am I OK with that? Um, and I, I mean, at the end, really, I mean, it was simply I felt like the Holy Spirit did speak to me and said, Chris, you know, for the last 26 or so years of your life, you've been the final authority uh, when it came to faith and morals. So. I mean, you're going to explore what the church has to say, and you've been diligent about that. But at the end, you make the decision. But I want you to look and see there's a consistency of faith and morals here. Would you submit to that? And and I remember thinking, well, if Jesus is initiating this, then uh, of course I want to submit to that. But how do I deal and reconcile with all these seeming, you know, leave, you know, huge discrepancies? And that was that journey together with my wife and I. So, yeah, we came in Easter 99. It's the most important and um, beautiful choice that we've made as a couple, I think, period. I mean, it's shaped the entirety of our family, the trajectory of where we're going and how we look at our past. And how did the um, Holy Spirit speak to you? Do you remember? Was it just sort of your, you felt the resonance of the external church with the interior you know, divine spark that we all have, or were there, um, well, yeah, yeah, of- no, that's, that's a great question. I think a lot of people struggle with this. How do I know that that's God speaking to me? I mean, it sounds a lot like my voice and, mm-hmm. um, I'm convinced and convicted that the Holy spirit does speak to us on a regular basis if, if we'll listen, but, but he's not going to rob us of our opportunity to make a decision and choose. So that's that's intrinsically connected to what it means to love. So really, um, the way that this was for me, I remember I had been studying and, and praying and thinking and talking uh, this through with friends and my wife for a long time when it came to the Catholic Church. And I, re- I just remember having this moment where it was just a moment of everything like fell into place, like at the last puzzle piece, and it clicked. And I really, I felt like ultimately the the Holy Spirit speak, not audibly, but almost audibly to me that, and that was that word, you, for the last 20 something years of your life, you've been the final authority uh, when it came to faith and morals. But I, but I'm asking you to to consider, would you, would you submit to this authority? I mean, the latter wasn't articulated that clearly for me at the time. I just knew the next step for me after that, like aha moment was, uh, I guess I need to enter the RCIA. And, uh, and I did. And my mother at that point said, Chris, you becoming cat. Well, a little bit after that, um, she said, you become a Catholic's the most hurtful thing you've ever done to me. And actually, when I when I entered the RCIA and decided to get my kids baptized, she yeah. said, uh, she said, um, uh, Chris, have you forgotten everything you've learned? So think about it. Like really, yeah. the authoritative voice in my past, my mother and her leading and guiding me, and really introducing me to a personal relationship with Jesus. To have her then ask me basically, what on earth are you doing? This is so contrary to anything that I've instructed you. Uh, It was definitely a difficulty. And I remember just making that decision. I I, I can't say no to you, Jesus. At one point, I told my mother, the reason I became Catholic is because of you. Well, she was not happy with that. And I said, you're the one who taught me to read the scriptures and to give myself fully to Jesus. And I I am. Yeah. Where, did they, did you ever resolve that with her? Is she still with us? Uh, did, did, where yeah, is she and I'll now? pray for oh. her. She's, she's actually in a cult right now. So, I mean, talk oh. about, you know, the pot calling the kettle black. I mean, this lady yeah. who had such an adherence to, you know, good old-fashioned Baptist or Assembly of God teaching is now in the land of uh, – it's almost like a, a, a nouveau uh, kind of take on certain, you know – 
ceremonial and dietary practices of Judaism and it incorporates all of this, you know, obsession with the end times and it, it, it questions the, the Trinity. I mean, it's just a complete cluster. It's almost like a buffet of heresy. And, uh, <laughs> and I look at her and I'm like, part of me wants to say, and you were ticked off at me for becoming Catholic. Yeah. Like, I don't even recognize where you are doctrinally speaking. Mm-hmm. Like you're in the land of, of, of completely crazy, unprecedented explorations. But she, uh, we, you know, we, she's my mother. I'm always yeah. going to love her and I'm praying yeah. for her. Yeah. No, we, I'll pray for her too. I'm, I'm so sorry. Let's talk about our mother with the capital O, capital M. Uh, let's talk about Mary. Amen. Uh, well, first of all, the Mary thing, uh, I, I mean, in terms of aha moments, again, it was another one of those, and this might be partly how my brain works, but I remember I went to start my master's uh, degree at Franciscan University, and um, I wanted to to really just get as much as I could out of that. I mean, obviously, I had been influenced by the conversion story and some of the teachings from Scott Hahn and Alan Shrek, and I certainly um, was, you know, was on fire. When I got there, I found out that a Mariologist, a particular Mariologist, was my professor um in a number of courses, but he also was going to be my advisor. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And I would go to these classes and I would come home so irritated because I felt like, like, my gosh, they're like the obsession with Mary is way over the top. Hmm. And I, I, I didn't know how to reconcile it because I had become Catholic. I had dealt with the Mariological basics, but then I'm finding myself irritated. And I asked the question of why, like, why is this bothering me? And I realized as I began to press this out that I'm afraid that I'm going to commit some type of idolatry by um, by following this line of thought. Like if you give too much adherence and and you know adoration to a creature rather than to the creator, I mean that's that's idolatry. Mm-hmm. And so um, again, I, you know, I got my paper and my pen out, and I'm processing and I'm writing and I'm thinking and I'm reading. And so I started just reading everything I could find on Mary. And I remember just thinking to myself, like, uh, this is some of this is a language issue still. I'm, I need to figure out, you know, my thinking with my Protestant brain and my thinking with my Catholic brain now, like what's going on. And, and what I began to realize, and this was one of those kind of moments is that part of this is uh, a little bit of a semantic. I'm, I'm, I need to articulate it a little bit differently and then understand my definitions were different. So for example, as a Protestant growing up, when you when you worship the Lord, it's prayer, it's song, it's scripture reading, it's you know, it's basically going and listening to the sermons. I mean, you're gonna your whole body is involved in adhering to the message of the gospels and and living it out. Well, you know, for Catholics, we, we do one louder in the words of Spinal Tap. We <laughs> we basically, which is. Probably the first time you'll ever hear Spinal Tap utilized in any of your academic podcasts. But (laughs) I think at that point, I realized, well, wait a minute. I obviously, I mean, I... It's a deep dive in to to Mariology. And for me, I'm just trying to, to get my language right. What's the one louder? The one louder is simply that we adore Jesus, you know? And so it's that you know, dulia, hyperdulia, latria, you know, these Latin kind of understandings. So we, we dulia the saints, we have a veneration, um, and then we hyperdulia Mary. And even some of the early, you know, saints would use the word worship, but it was mm. a worship distinct from that third, which is latria, which is connected to sacrifice and adoration. So we only latria, we only adore God. We can't Latria Maria, well, but we do hyperdulia. She's the queen of all saints. Mm-hmm. So, like that clarity was like an amazing o- oasis. And really, I thought, okay. And then I thought, would be a great shirt. Like I hyperdulia <laughs> Mary. Um, <laughs> like three people on the planet would understand why that's funny. But yeah, all that to say, I mean, for me, I had this aha moment. You know, that kind of spirit speaking to me one day when I was in my office, and I, I just put the book down. I was on my couch just reading and relaxing and, and I just uttered a prayer. And the prayer was, I love you, Mary. And I kind of stopped. And it was almost like I, I came out of that contentment. I'm like, 
what, what did I just say? Mm. And I realized that all of that knowledge and all of that information had gone from the head to the heart. And I thought, I do love her. And that was really my ultimate conclusion was that I, I can love Mary radically because I will never love her as much as Jesus. I will never love her as much as St. Joseph. I could never love her even as much as St. Maximilian Colby or Alphonsus Liguori or de Montfort or pick a saint that is a great Marian affection. I can never do that, but I'm going to try. Like, what if I could somehow get close to loving her like they did? And, and you know, in a lot of ways, that was my mission then. How do I? And so I gave my family to the Blessed Mother. And I tried to do that um, on a daily basis, kind of wrote my own consecratory prayer. And then I thought, well, I can write about Mary. I'll write some songs about Mary. I'll write uh, some books about Mary. And then I thought, well, if I'm going to if I'm gonna continue on with higher education, I want to go into something that will give me my uh, systematic theology degree with an emphasis in Mariology. Well, what, what, what has that? Where does that where's that even offered? I thought, well, there's some places overseas, but I've got like nine kids. Uh, <laughs> at the time, at the time I might've had maybe seven. So I thought that's a little bit unrealistic. And then Dayton, right, right there in the same state I was in, they offered a Mariological program connected to the Marianum in Rome, the International Marian Research Institute. And literally, even before I had finished my master's degree, I got accepted to the program so I could get my pontifical degree in Mariology. And it was amazing. I was so mm. elated. And I thought, this is it. I'm going to spend my life just trying to explore how to love Jesus like Mary. And it's been quite the adventure. Yeah. And I think you are, um, with, with, your, with your Baptist background, I think you are so well positioned to think about this with, fre- with new eyes, with, uh, with a fresh perspective. Because uh, I, who was born a Catholic and many other Catholics, like, we, we just know that Mary is a big part of our uh, uh, religious um, universe. And, you know, there's statues and candles. And uh, after a while, you think like, oh, this is some kind of a quaint thing that grandmothers do. But then when we look at the... Um, the giants of our, our faith, how they love Mary um, and all the popes, you know, uh, certainly St. John Paul, certainly uh, Benedict, certainly um, uh, Frange- uh, Pope Francis. He prays his, you know, his four, his four cycles of the rosary every morning. It must take him an hour and a half. And like, he, that's what he does. Like he's the Pope, but he makes sure <laughs> that he has time every day, you know, to, to pray all of the rosary every day. And, um, so it's, it's like, it's hard. I've got nothing nearly as important to do. And I find, you know, the rose, I do it once a week and it's, 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 I'm not there, you know, and I can play a decade while I'm driving. That's easy. Uh, but like, how, how do you cultivate that desire and how do you cultivate the, uh, the relationship? Right. Well, that's, and again, I think that that's such an important question because unfortunately, a lot of people who are really trying to dive deep into the faith, uh, they, they seem to go in a couple different extremes. One is only academic, only cerebral. It's really, it's, I'm not trying to pick a fight here. I mean, it can oftentimes <laughs> be almost uh, a, a little bit of a Gnostic expression where it's, yeah. it's all about knowledge, deeper knowledge. And um, they almost disconnect that from the real life expression and experience, almost disconnected from emotions. And then you have the other extreme, which is almost like somebody's putting, you know, clothes on their Mary statues. And it's just seems <laughs> like hyper, like obsessed and it's super yeah. emotional. And it's like this devotion that almost nobody can relate to. And I thought, well, how do I, how do I walk? you know, how do I ultimately tick off everybody? Well, let's try to be balanced. So (laughs) the thing about this is what I realized is that there are a variety of seasons in my Marian journey. And I love this. So sometimes I'm hardcore all in and sometimes it's just, it's just there. And I'm, and I'm just kind of exploring it and being in it but my focus is maybe on something a little bit different. Here's an example. Last year, I I got a little bit obsessed with revisiting St. Francis of Assisi and Claire of Assisi, and especially this idea of detachment and poverty, which then led me to Charles de Foucault, who is going to be canonized coming up. And it was almost like, wait a minute, because I was getting yeah. Foucault a little bit confused with de Cousade. And I thought, well, what? 
who is this called guy and what's going on? All of a sudden, the, these words of detachment, I mean, are literally just unpacked um, with Foucault, who, by the way, never baptized a single person, didn't start in order, basically lived in the middle of nowhere, had no social media accounts, didn't publish any <laughs> books, basically tried to live his life as hidden as humanly possible. And I thought, like, I think I need this person in my life. And yeah. so all last year, poverty and this idea of just giving my insecurities and my weakness to the Lord and, and just be abandoned to him. Well, it's it was a game changer. So I'm not really thinking as much about, you know, the doctrine and dogmatic, you know, explorations and uh, in Mariology. And yet Mary was so obviously connected to Francis and Claire and certainly um, Foucault. And I just realized, OK, uh, you know, this is where I'm, I'm at. But my practice was every night, one year. Uh, I actually every night would pray just the sorrowful mysteries. So every night as mm -hmm. I was going to bed, uh, I I would just do the sorrowful mysteries. But I've continued the practice of praying the rosary every night, but I always fall asleep doing it. So mm -hmm. in the morning, I usually will find a variety of rosaries underneath my you know my pillows <laughs> uh, all over my body. I just yeah. thought like this is a perfect fitting. So, and the, the the story is, is that you start a rosary at night, you fall asleep, your guardian angel finishes it. So he's doing mm. really well on praying the rosary. <laughs> so the point is, is that for us, we as a family, I think we have Mary statues and we have uh, tons of books on Our Lady and we're talking about the faith here. And uh, I think that's what I want it to be, is that yeah. the, there's a familiarity in how we're communicating, asking her intercession. And like I said, we do. The, I do this little consecratory prayer that I made uh, in the mornings if I'm taking my kids to school. So we're it's an all in kind of affair. Yeah. And so you have uh, nine, huh? What are the what are the ages? That's a great question. I'm not sure anybody really knows. I think the <laughs> oldest is around 29 uh -huh. and uh, and the youngest is 10. So we have a kid um, pretty much every couple of years. Uh, at this point, uh, we think we've, we've um, got to the point where we can focus on other things. But my joke has been... Uh, we'll never have our forever furniture at this rate. Like <laughs> kids and grandkids, yeah. it's just an opportunity to destroy anything that's nice. Yeah, that's thus we're back to a, detachment. It's a beautiful thing. It's a, <laughs> it is. So, um, okay, theologically asking, uh, how do we know what we know about Mary? Right when we pray these, um, uh, for example, the glorious mysteries, the Assumption of Mary, Mary being crowned. Uh, queen of heaven, when, whenever we get scripture passages, there just aren't for that. This is, comes to us through tradition and revelation. What did they teach you in, in your uh, program of study and, and what have you learned on your own? And how, how do we know what we think we know about Mary? Well, I love this. Let me just simply say every person, whether they want to acknowledge it or not, has authority, has an authority that they adhere to. It might be themselves it might be a denomination or it might be a particular charismatic leader, but nobody makes decisions based only on their own understanding and their own reason as if they live in a vacuum. We're all influenced by something and someone, culture, like it's just a reality. But for us following Jesus Christ, it would be very important, obviously, what does he say? So uh, within the Protestant arena, your final authority, and that was definitely the word used, would be the scriptures. Um, but they don't mm -hmm. really address the question, uh, how do we know that the scriptures are, in fact, the finality of, right, the canon? Like, how do we not how do we know that there's not going to be one day an inclusion or another like great leap, if you will? We have the Old Testament, then we have the New Testament. What's the next series of books that are going to come there that are going to guide us? And so depending on the denomination, you, you may or may not have, a, you know, a, a modification. That was certainly the case with Martin Luther, who felt inclined to say he was authoritative enough to 
to jettison some of the, uh, you know, the deuterocanonical books from the Bible, as well as potentially modify even James uh, and some other passages because they didn't align to his theology. Well, the long and the short of it is, for me, when I became Catholic, I recognized that the authority of the Catholic Church isn't isn't a confinement; it's actually a freedom. And so I. I I've often felt that people who are questioning authority and fighting against the authority of the Catholic Church, ultimately what they want is to be Protestant, not to be snide about it, but they, <laughs> they're acting like and behaving like someone who would rather be their own authority. Well, we have a name for that, and it's uh, Protestantism, and there are a lot of different ways that you can explore that. But I guarantee you that in that realm, it's a little bit more of a Lord of the Flies experience. I mean, you can have some consuming of one another out there, and it's not its not a safe place. So with me and uh, those who have become Catholic and adhering to and submitting to the authority of the Catholic Church, it's a kind of a big breath of fresh air. It's almost like it's like you have a father that looks at their kids and they say, uh, you can play in the playground if you want, but just don't play in the road. Here's a boundary and a barrier. It's for your own safety. It's for your own good. And so we have some of these lines really clearly delineated. Now, the authoritative gift that we have in the church is certainly not just for discipline or marking boundaries. It's to help us and ensure that we maintain that consistency of faith and morals. Because again, it's Jesus Christ and his church, uh, and it's you know, he was building it. So obviously, um, this connection between Jesus and the church, the rock, upon this rock I'll build my church, is very important. For me, when I, when it came to Marian dogmas, um, it, these teachings of the church that were not um, left for us to explore, I loved it. So mm -hmm. Mother of God, Ever Virgin, Immaculate Conception, and the one you bring up, um, the Assumption, uh, Munificentissimus Deus. And this mm -hmm. 1950 document from the Catholic Church is not articulating a few things, but it is articulating some other things. So, for example, it is emphasizing and saying Mary's assumed taking body and soul into heaven. It's not clarifying whether or not she dies or falls asleep. And so there's some openness for theological exploration. So your boundaries are set. And here's one of the boundaries. You can't say that Mary dies because death, um, from some they're arguing, because death is connected to the fall. The wages of sin is death, St. Paul says to Romans. So how can you allow or even think that she dies? So the Catholic Church says, you're right, she's not going to die like all of us, but in being fitting, um, it being fitting and being more like her son, she'll be given a dispensation and allowed to die, to be like Jesus in all things. So it's not connected to at all the fall. Oh, okay. And some say, I don't choose to hold to this idea that she dies. There's too much potential confusion. We'll say the dormition, she falls asleep and she's taken to heaven. So both are settling upon the authority of the Catholic Church when it comes to this dogmatic teaching of the Assumption. But you can see here that there's some room still to unpack and to explore. So, and I think this was Han back in the old days, but uh, I liked the idea of doctrinal development as um, kind of differentiated by organic or mutative. So it's like a, a, an acorn. Uh, it doesn't grow up into a big acorn tree, right? It's an oak tree, uh, it, mm -hmm. nor would it grow up and become an oak tree with a leopard's paw. Um, <laughs> it's going to be organically developed. And so how you know that something's being organically developed, does it fall in stride with previous authoritative declarations? Now, that's why whenever you look at anything from the church, she's always hearkening back to previous councils, uh, scriptures, and um, ecclesial documents. Why? Because you, it is not a good thing to have a novel idea in the grand scheme of, of doctrine. We, we usually call those heresies. Mm -hmm. And so I could say, Oh, I have this great insight. Mary is so holy, she's really part of the Trinity. It's now a new teaching called the Quadrinity. Well, that is, uh, first of all, it's opposed to the consistency of faith and morals. It's certainly because um, it's idolatry, and it's basically robbing true, authentic, mm -hmm. authoritative teachings, uh, their value, and I'm usurping all of that process and saying I have the authority to modify. And ultimately what happens is, is that for us as Catholics, we adhere to 
a few things. One, uh, the scriptures. But the scriptures are in stride and in step with big T tradition, right? The living out the enactment of of tradition. Now, small t tradition can modify and change according to obviously the teaching body of the church. She's going to know where we're at in the grand scheme of history, and she's going to guide us. And that teaching body is going to be that foundation that helps us to know what is right and wrong, that consistency of faith and morals. You can have a lot of weeds with the wheat, but we certainly are going to have some clarity on how to walk the walk. And when it comes to Mariology, breathe a big sigh of relief because some of the great heroes have really given us an incredible insight backed by the church, enhanced and backed by scripture. Last thought, and then I'll stop talking. But the reason that um, the assumption is a little bit of a struggle, by the way, it's not a struggle for any Protestant that I've ever met. The struggle was with the Immaculate Conception, not the assumption. Uh, the Immaculate Conception was a struggle because that seemed to be almost directly at odds with scriptures from St. Paul to the Romans saying, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. How can you say that she's immaculately conceived? But the assumption makes sense because there, even though it's not explicit, there's, there's an implicit reference back to Elijah walked with God and was no more. So there are these actual cases where you can see someone taken up to the Lord who did not die. And mm-hmm. so there's a biblical precedent. And if your authority is the Bible, then you can say, well, that that kind of makes sense. But for us within the Catholic context, we're not Bible alone. So you have this complementarity. You have the scripture, big T tradition, and of course, the teaching body of the church, the magisterium. That is huge. Mm-hmm. And really being able to navigate some of these insanely awkward and weird doctrinal moments, not just from history, but in the present, boy, what a great gift to be given the church in that beacon of light. I think that's a very important point, too, that we settle these things communally as a group. We have councils at Nicaea and Constantinople, and we have, like right now, we're having a synod. It's it's we together figure this out and the, you know, the people who spend all day long thinking about this figured out together. So there's less room for somebody to have some kind of erroneous heretical, you know, uh, inspiration that not inspiration, what I don't know what you call it. Right, right, right. No, I'm with you. Uh, Yeah. Um, uh, There's always going to be somebody who's coming up with some grand scheme, novel idea and and maybe it has good intentions, but, but but I always tell myself and any students that I'm teaching that ultimately, if you can't like you you want to reference scripture tradition, what does the uh, the church have to say about this? That's your safeguard. That that's how you know you're not in the bog somewhere mm-hmm. about to be consumed by an anaconda. I don't I don't know why that imagery <laughs> came to yeah. me. But uh, yeah, so in some ways, there is a sense of safety in numbers. That being said, even almost, again, most Catholics that I know would look back on the time of the Reformation and say, we certainly needed a good old fashioned overhaul. Like we certainly needed some some change because there was there was a lot of, of insanity going on. But yeah. the behavior and the, and the way about um, in which it was going about was like a small child having a temper tantrum. And at some point, the father and the mother is going to draw a line in the sand and say, no, you can't behave this way. And it just became a political fiasco. Well, you know, this is going on today. I mean, without mm-hmm. picking any fights, there's a lot of division right now happening within the church. And I, I have to say, it's a warning flag when you decide to pit yourself against um, the magisterial body. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I, I think we should tread a little bit lightly and respectfully in this. Let's ask some questions. Let's, let's pray. And with an aching heart, you know, see if we can have a a real discussion and and unfold things. But St. Francis would have gotten nowhere if he would have drawn a line in the sand and said, I I demand that you approve what I'm doing, or I insist. I mean, even Foucault, who was my example earlier, made the decision, I won't go and live this this completely insanely monastic experience if my advisor, my superior says otherwise. I mean, I yeah. mean, authority is imperative. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think it comes from the fact that we live in a in a republic and uh, we have this democratic attitude that we will change our representatives when we are ready and that we will use activism to change our society for the better. And that's right. very appropriate in the political sphere. But the church is older and hierarchical and it's a family and we're the children. And so it, it, it we, we need a little humility and to figure out which sphere we're talking about and how we talk about it. Um, I I totally agree with what you're saying. I I listen to a lot of Catholic podcasts, and sometimes the tone I find uh, is uh, I don't know presumptuous, insolent. Not not that insolent, but still uh, a little more than I'd like. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the question is, what do you? What's your end goal for this particular argument and frustration? Yeah. And if your end goal is you know healing or repentance or um. Uh, you know, some sort of unity, uh, you're not going to get it by, by being aggressive. And so, I mean, I think about that because certainly there are great saints and heroes of the faith who, you know, had a, had a, a mighty sword and did a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of things that, that were certainly not, you know, relaxed and quiet, you know, discourse and dialogue. But l- let's remember that garden experience where, Jesus' instruction encourages Peter, you know, you can't you can't assume to live by the sword. I mean, a person who's living by the sword is going to yeah. die by the sword. So so he, <laughs> you know, right. he heals the ear and he and, and it's like there's got to be a different way. I mean, yeah. And we're a family. We're a family. So yeah. we talk to each other the way you talk in a family. Um, yeah. OK. Hey, who is Juniper B. Carroll? All right. So Juniper Carroll, uh, to me, is a fascinating character. I was first introduced to him by um, some of my Mariology classes that I was taking at Franciscan. And uh, he is a guy who was a huge proponent of three Mariological principles um, and teachings. One is Mary as co-redemptrix, which was a huge struggle for me, obviously, as a convert. What are you talking about, co? And obviously, recognizing (laughs) that the word co-redemptrix is not equal but it's, you know, with and under. And so the use of that term, co-redemption, has a theological precedent, and it's there, and you can explore it, and tons of people were writing about it. And it's certainly not a novel idea. And so you don't like that because it seems to be um, maybe a, a, a... a little bit of an obstacle when it comes to ecumenical dialogue. And I want to say as a convert, you know, what's a struggle in ecumenical dialogue is the immaculate conception, but we can't throw that one out. So we got to explain it in the same way. You still got to explain and talk about co-redemption. What I love is that in Lumen Gentium, uh, it's going to basically in that eighth chapter, talk about Mary as co-redemptrix without using the word co-redemptrix, but that doctrinal teaching is there offering her maternal heart, there at Calvary, you know, that's that's part of what co-redemption is about. It does use the word advocate and it does use the word mediatrix. And that's where that big movement is coming from in a lot of ways is um, they want a dogma for Mary as co-redemptrix, mediatrix of all graces and advocate. So in some ways, Juniper B. Carroll is, you know, promulgating this idea in a way early on. But by the way, Juniper B. Carroll he was not a initiator of new theological doctrine. So in some ways he was a great librarian. He was a great synthesizer, a great collector of data. He basically was an expert at putting together lists and finding every possible publication you could on a particular topic and putting it together. And he did that with things like uh, the Debitum Picati, and he did that with things like co-redemption, and he did that with even the predestination of Mary with her son. So keep in mind also that Juniper Picurel is an OFM. Um, he's uh, mm-hmm. Order of the Friars Minor. So yeah. as a Franciscan, he's going to adhere to some things a little bit differently than St. Thomas Aquinas and the Dominicans. Mm-hmm. So long story short, I, I think that there's at the heart of the predestination of Mary, which is one of his major big pushes um, an area that he published on, collected data on, researched, is because you know the Franciscans weren't interested in necessarily having the incarnation of Jesus connected to necessarily, you know, the fall. So, right, that, that somehow or another that the incarnation was going to 
to happen because this is the expression of the greatest good. And, uh, you know, Dominicans, they're all upset. Why are you talking <laughs> like that? This is a hypothetical. You can't base your theology on a hypothetical. And, um, and so it's just the, the, the emphasis on that incarnation changes from greatest expression, which it is still right of the yeah. glory of God to a salvific purpose. But again, that's when the popes intervene and they're like, stop anathematizing one another. Like, again, <laughs> we're back to children behave. Yes. You can both swim in the pool. Uh, yes. The point, the point about that to me that was fascinating was that Juniper Carroll, um, and I was really actually more interested in his biography and writing that than I was even exploring his Mariology. I mean, I, I, I'm still fascinated with his, with his biography because he was born in Cuba. Uh, his family loved, you know, the Franciscans. They would come to visit Cuba and um, he had a, a, a family member that was a bishop. And basically his mom and his dad, they were hugely religious and his father was somewhat wealthy. And they decided, let's send our kids. And they sent a couple of their kids over to a college in America in Tennessee at that. And, uh, and they were going to say, why don't you do your 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 schooling over in, in America? So they would have had to have taken a boat and then train and finally gotten there. And they're kids, like they're little kids. And they're by themselves, basically. There's the older brother and I think a sister and himself. Uh, long wow. and the short of it is, I thought, like, this is crazy. Yeah. And then the school kind of closes down and then they go back to Cuba and then he decides to to enter the Franciscans. And, uh, and so his, um, passion, uh, was Mariology he ended up starting the Mariological Society of America. And, uh, he made it basically his whole goal and his commitment to find new ways to publish and to introduce to the laity, a deeper devotion to Mary. But he was a pretty hardcore theologian. Now, I will say I had the chance to interview a couple people that knew him. Mm -hmm. uh, I had the chance to even interview Father Peter Fellner before he passed away. And I'm sure that the other Franciscans have passed away since. And the thing about Father Carroll was that the way that he lived out his vocation was pretty unprecedented. It was not what normally would happen for a Franciscan, especially a Franciscan who had been given all of that education, they would have assumed, I think, that he would have come back and just basically taught all of their incoming friars. Mm -hmm. And he did teach. He taught at Siena and he taught uh, at Bonaventure briefly. And um, but most of his stuff was a little bit, a little bit different and a little bit unconventional. And so there's always been a little bit connected by other friars, kind of this idea that 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 Father uh, Carroll was a little bit not rogue, and he certainly wasn't doing anything at odds with his superior, but it was it was a little bit unconventional, and I don't know if they knew exactly how to deal with that. So you'd get a little bit of a mix on people recollecting and reminiscing about him. Yeah. So it, well, that sounds like a really interesting life, and um, it was sounds like it was very useful to you in in figuring all of the things you you <laughs> well, you just taught me about today. So um, yeah. That's really all I got. Is there anything you want to add or, or we should talk about before we? Before sure. We... I, I think um, the one thing I would just simply say is that um, I've been doing ministry for 25, 30 years, like full time traveling as a lay evangelist, as a musician. And uh, what I've noticed is that people, whether they're pursuing academic, um, you know, degrees and um you know, exploring different theological avenues and writing and speaking, it's easy for people to kind of lose themselves. And what I've often said is that you can't sacrifice your marriage for those that are married on the altar of ministry. And so what we've noticed is a lot of people who do ministry and a lot of people who try to share the faith with others because they're excited and understandably so. I mean, but the thing that often gets sacrificed is their, is their marriage and their family. Mm. And I think that a big part of what we do, my wife and I especially, is we try to really instill and encourage people to soak in the beauty of their marriage 
the sacrament that it is and to let that unfold in their family in a real natural and beautiful way. And so we have a ministry called the Center for Holy Marriage. And the Center for Holy Marriage is exactly that. How do we help people getting married in pre-cana classes? And we do all the pre-cana retreats for Syracuse, New York, and Newark, New Jersey. How do we help them getting ready to be married? And then how do we help couples stay married and not just stay married, but grow and thrive in their marriage? And so this ministry we put together is just really for them. And um, uh, we're a big believer and a big fan that Mary, the Blessed Mother, is hugely excited about marriage, the sacrament of marriage. And unfortunately, in this day and age, uh, marriages and families are falling apart. And this is the only thing I would really just emphasize and say is that, is that without adhering to any type of, you know, end times kind of idea, simply put, is that the enemy has gone out of his way to destroy marriage and family. And I mm-hmm. think it'll get even worse. If there's anything that we need Our Lady to help us with, it's how do we love our spouses and how do we love our children more and more. And this, to me, is the great passion, because I think we will solve our crisis for the priesthood by having holy families. I think that we're going to solve even the dilemmas and the moral calamity that's around us in this world by having holy families. The more that our families, our husbands and wives are loving each other, the more that we're going to see a difference in our culture. And so that's really our mission. Everything that has happened in our life has, has focused us to this. And if people want to find out more, they can go to certainly the Happy Place Homestead YouTube channel and see some fun videos of us with our family. <laughs> but they can also go to sanctifyyourmarriage.com and see some videos for couples. I mean, basically, if you're looking for it, it's out there. we got a lot of social media presence. Amen. Amen. Okay. And we'll put that in the, the show notes for anyone who wants to scroll down. Um, and, uh, thank you so much. Uh, Chris, would you, would you say a blessing for our listeners and and their families? Yeah, of course. Um, in the name of the father, son, Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, I love you. And I thank you for your mercy and your peace and your goodness. And I ask Jesus that you would bring these families, these couples, these theologians, these priests, these religious into a deeper intimacy with you that they would see and feel and experience Uh, the love that you have for them, and that they would share that love with a world that is so hurting. Mm -hmm. I pray, Lord, you would give us compassion, a sensitivity, and empathy for all of those that we meet. Lord, a deep conviction of the beauty of truth. We thank you, God, that you are with us and that we are more than conquerors with you in you. I love you. I'm grateful for this opportunity. I pray that it would bless many, especially today. I pray that those listening would find themselves consoled and brought into a deeper intimacy with the sacred heart, your sacred heart. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And we pray for your mom, wherever she is. <laughs> Amen. Amen. All right. Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross. Be born for me, for you. And hail, hail the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Chris Odinitz and Chris Paget recorded this conversation on Monday, February 14, 2022, St. Valentine's Day. Also the feast of Saints Cyril and Methodius, the brothers who were apostles to the Slavs, and in whose honor is named the Cyrillic alphabet. Our music is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band. Their website is www.gscoasterband.com. Our logo of the dog, Dominicanis, is from a stained glass window in the monastery of Santo Domingo de Silos in northern Spain and is taken with permission of the Dominican friars of England, Scotland, and Wales from their website, www.english.op.org. I'm Chris O'Donis. Please email me at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. I thank you for listening. Talk to you soon. This is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing.